0: The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. In the early morning hours of December 6, 1959, a Southern California family awoke to a brutal attack. The tortured screams emitted from their stately three-story home resounded through their Los Feliz neighborhood, jolting nearby residents from their slumber. What horrors had unfolded that cold December night, and what could the motive be for the bloody and horrifying event? Over 60 years later, this story continues to be told, and wild speculation rages on. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Murderish join me as I walk you through the decline of Dr. Harold Perelson and the alleged killer curse. This case takes us to Los Angeles, California in the late 1950s. At that time, LA was the fourth largest city in the country, with the population expanding rapidly. This led to a housing boom, with developers snatching up any vacant land they could. The architecture of newly built structures was innovative and modern. It was the dawn of what the LA Conservatory refers to as a suburban metropolis. Families could live out domestic bliss in sizable homes while enjoying the bustle of the city life and all of the opportunities that came with it. Not to mention the idyllic Southern California weather and the glitz and glamour of nearby Hollywood. Located within the Los Feliz area is Griffith Park and Observatory, the LA Zoo, the Greek Theater, and the world renowned Hollywood sign. Aside from tourist attractions, some of the most lavish homes built by architects like Frank Lloyd Wright can be found there. Because of this, it's always been a desirable area for celebrities to call home. Pop music legend Madonna once owned an estate in Los Feliz. What some people may not know is that the neighborhood also has a darker history. For decades, residents have believed that Los Feliz is cursed. It began in the 1790s, when just outside of Los Angeles, there was a small pueblo known as Rancho Los Feliz. Over 6,000 acres of ranch land was given to Jose Vicente Feliz, a soldier and local government official. After his death, his heirs continued to occupy the ranch. It was a quiet, provincial way of life that was disrupted by tragedy. Domingo Files, part owner of the ranch, had married a young, attractive woman named Maria del Rosario Villa. She was unfaithful to Domingo and had an affair with a local man named Gervacio Alispas. Unhappy in her marriage to a significantly older man, Maria fled the ranch with her lover. Two years later, in 1836, Domingo ran into his estranged wife and her lover, at a fiesta at the Mission San Gabriel. In those days, infidelity was a punishable crime. Domingo notified police of his wife's infidelity and her whereabouts. But Maria managed to escape to Los Angeles and then pleaded with the mayor, saying she was trapped in a miserable marriage. The mayor commanded Maria to be a devoted wife and return to her husband. She seemed to agree and left LA with her husband, but she had secretly hatched a sinister plan. On horseback, Domingo rode with Maria to the ranch, content to start a new, more blissful chapter in his marriage. But, unbeknownst to him, Gervaccio was hiding on the outskirts of the ranch. Maria's lover attacked Domingo, yanking him off his horse. Maria shouted for him to stab her husband and he obeyed. Domingo was dead. The pair then covered his body with leaves in a shallow ravine. Law enforcement soon caught up with Maria and Garvaccio, and they were arrested and jailed. A group of citizens, unsatisfied with the lengthy legal process and angry over the lover's actions, took matters into their own hands and killed the couple by firing squad. Then, in 1863, a woman named Petronia, who was raised by her wealthy uncle, Don Antonio Files, was meant to inherit her uncle's land and his riches. However, when the uncle contracted smallpox and was quarantined from his niece, a scheming friend convinced him to remove Petronia from his will, left penniless after his death, Petronia is said to have placed a curse on the land that makes up Los Feliz. According to Curbed L.A., Petronia proclaimed, A blight shall fall on this terrestrial paradise. The cattle shall sicken. The fields shall no longer respond to the tiller. I see a great flood spreading destruction. I see the grand oaks wither in the tongues of flames. The wrath of heaven and the vengeance of hell shall fall upon this place. Sure enough, in the years that followed, those occupying Don Antonio's former land were met with a series of misfortunes. In 1882, part of the land was purchased by Griffith J. Griffith. The millionaire planned to transform the ranch into a flourishing farm, but nature had other plans a flood ruined his crops and further attempts to grow anything proved futile. It seemed Petronia's dreaded curse had come to fruition. Not only was the once fertile land useless for farming, Griffith's workers also refused to be on the grounds past dusk. They claimed to see the ghosts of those who had lost their lives on the property. In 1896, Griffith decided to donate the land to the city to be used as a public park, modern-day Griffith Park. The strange story doesn't end there. In 1903, while vacationing in Santa Monica, Griffith shot his wife. He cited alcoholic insanity for the act, and though his wife survived, his marriage ended with him losing custody of his son. Griffith is said to haunt Griffith Park, along with other ghosts cited over the years. This alleged curse carries over to the case we are examining today. The lavish home where the crime occurred holds an unnerving story of its own within its walls. The mansion located at 2475 Glendower Place was designed in 1925 by architect Harry E. Weiner. The Spanish Revival-style mansion was three stories tall, featured 12 bedrooms, and spanned over 5,000 square feet, which doesn't sound enormous by modern standards, especially in LA. But back then, a home of that size was considered lavish. A living room, dining room, den, breakfast room, kitchen, and glass conservatory made up the first floor. The second floor had four master bedrooms and three bathrooms. The third floor showcased a ballroom and bar, along with unused staff quarters. It was a magnificent structure embellished by a lush decorative garden and manicured lawns. At the bottom of the walkway leading to the house sat a three-car garage. Prominent businessman Harry F. Schumacher enjoyed three short years in the palatial estate. He died in July of 1928. The house was then sold on December 6, 1932, a significant date to keep in mind for later. The next owner of 2475 Glendower Place was Frederick Zelnick. He was a standout producer and director of German silent cinema. In 1922, when Hitler rose to power in his native Germany, Zelnick fled to London. He spent a brief period in LA producing films but mostly called London his home. When Zelnick died in 1950, the home was sold for $60,000, about a half a million dollars in today's money. The new homeowners were the Perilsons, Harold and Lillian, along with their three children, Judy, Debbie, and Joel. The Perilsons' occupancy of the home would forever alter its history. Ladies, you've heard me raving about my Beta Brand Yoga Denim Jeans. Here's why. These jeans accentuate my figure, they go with literally anything, and best of all, they feel like you're wearing yoga pants. With other jeans, they might look good, but they're anything but comfortable. Beta Brand makes stylish dress pant yoga pants you can wear to the office or on a date, and now. They make yoga denim and I am obsessed because all of their pants are beyond comfortable. No more tugging at your pants because Beta Brand pants fit like your favorite pair of yoga pants. You don't have to choose between comfort or style. Beta Brand gives you both. Inspired by your favorite workout gear, Beta Brand's clothing is thoughtfully made with functionality, comfort, and style in mind. I used to come home from a long day and quickly change out of my soul-sucking jeans. When I wear Beta Brand pants, I forget that I'm wearing them because they are that comfortable, and they launch new styles every week. Right now, my listeners can get 30% off their first Beta Brand order when you go to betabrand.com/murderish. That's 30% off your first order for a limited time. At betabrand.com/slash murderish. Discover what it's like to be comfortable and confident all the time. Go to betabrand.com/slash murderish for 30% off. Binging podcasts and audiobooks are two of my favorite pastimes. With Audible, I can get both of these in one simple app. Chances are you're familiar with Audible because they're the leading provider of spoken word entertainment like best-selling audiobooks, celebrity memoirs, and now podcasts. Whether you're into comedy, suspense, romance, sci-fi, fitness and wellness, or true crime, Audible has it all. And while I'm listening, I can clean the house, do yoga, grocery shop, or just ignore the world for a bit. Listen, we all need a break from life. Audible is the perfect choice when you need a breather. And now's the best time to try it. For a limited time, you can get access to thousands of awesome titles on Audible for only $9.95 a month for six months. Just download the Audible app for free and start listening to gripping content like Bossy Pants by Tina Fey or If It Bleeds by Stephen King. And I love that I can switch to podcast binging all in the same app. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. So, what are you waiting for? Visit audible.com/slash murderish or text murderish to 500-500. That's A U D I B L E.com/slash murderish or text murderish to 500-500. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. Harold Nathan Perelson was born on February 1, 1909 in Queens, New York. He was a second-generation American with a Polish father and a Russian mother. Henry Perelson, Harold's father, was a printer's clerk, raising four children on a modest salary. His mother, Molly's parents, had fled the land shortages and widespread unemployment that resulted from imperial repression. Like millions of other immigrants who came to the States, Harold's parents were in pursuit of the American dream. They had high hopes for their eldest son, Harold, and used their savings to send him to medical school. After graduating, Harold moved to Southern California. He quickly landed a job at a physician's office in Inglewood and earned a name for himself in the medical field. Over the next several years, he published several scholarly articles in the field of cardiology. Dr. Perelson eventually became Assistant Head of Cardiology at the USC School of Medicine, and he was an essential part of surgical teams at Santa Fe Hospital of Los Angeles, Los Angeles County General, and Cedars of Lebanon Hospital. He also served as keynote speaker at medical conferences all over the country. His credentials were impressive. Dr. Perelson went on to operate a clinic in Englewood where he employed six other physicians. Having his own practice was a big deal. It meant security and authority. Several years into his medical career, Dr. Perelson met and married Lillian Silver. Like him, Lillian was a second-generation American born from Jewish immigrants. Together, they had three children, Judy, Debbie, and Joel. As a well-respected and forward-thinking physician, Dr. Perelson always aimed for loftier achievements. On December 30, 1938, he filed a patent for a new medical device he invented. It involved an attachment for hypodermic syringes designed to inject drugs directly from a sealed glass capsule. This invention would reduce the danger of contamination and spillage. But the doctor was an idea man, and he needed someone to manifest his creation into being. In 1949, Dr. Perelson went into business with a man by the name of Edward Shoestack, who promised to make the doctor's ingenious creation materialize. Over the span of 11 years, Dr. Perelson and his wife, Lillian, Sunk over $24,000 into the project, which would turn out to be fruitless. Shustak was a con man. He evidently had no intention of returning the Perelsons money or making the invention a reality, at least in Harold's name. In 1952, Shustak used a fake name to steal Dr. Perelson's idea. In turn, the doctor sued for $100,000. And after a vicious two-year court battle, Dr. Perelson was awarded roughly $24,000, basically breaking even on the failed business venture. To this day, it's unknown whether his syringe ever made it to market. Sadly, this was just the beginning of the Perelson's struggles. On November 3rd, 1957, their eldest daughter, 16-year-old Judy, was involved in a car accident. Both of her younger siblings were in the car. Debbie was nine at the time and Joel was 11. Judy collided head-on with another vehicle while driving her father's 1952 Oldsmobile. The children sustained several injuries from the accident. Judy injured her hands and knees, got a concussion, and suffered neurogenic shock. Debbie's cheek had been sliced open and Joel walked away with a head injury. They were lucky to be alive. Dr. Perelson took the other driver, Eleanor Keller, to court. Keller claimed that Judy had driven through a red light. Dr. Perelson countered, arguing that Keller's carelessness and negligence caused the crash. He sued for $20,000 in damages for each daughter and $10,000 for his son. The court ruled in his favor, but only awarded enough money to cover the children's medical bills. The two lawsuits put the successful doctor under a lot of stress. He and Lillian were in debt, and the mansion where they raised their family was starting to be more of a facade than representative of their financial status. Soon enough, money problems began to impact the doctor's health. He reportedly had several heart attacks that involved costly hospital stays. It was clear to those closest to him that Dr. Perelson was unraveling. Brian Clune wrote about it in his 2017 book, Hollywood Obscura, Death, Murder, and the Paranormal Aftermath, which features hauntings and dark histories around L.A. On the evening of December 5th, 1959, Nothing particularly notable happened. According to Kloon's book, Dr. Perelson came home from work, greeted his wife and children, poured himself a drink, then watched Lillian wrap Christmas gifts while dinner finished cooking. Even though the Perelsons were Jewish, they celebrated Christmas with friends and Dr. Perelson's colleagues. Occasionally, they gave the children gifts for Hanukkah and Christmas. This was 1950s America, a time when a close-knit family unit was prized above all else. Because of this, the Perilsons always made sure they sat down at the dinner table together and talked about the events of the day. After dinner that night, the family watched television before parting ways. Debbie and Joel were off to bed, Judy had some homework to complete, and Lillian went upstairs to read in bed. Dr. Perelson stayed downstairs, watching the nightly news before joining his wife in bed. By the time he settled in with a book, Lillian was fast asleep. Because it was the 1950s, the husband and wife slept in two separate twin beds. There were two reasons for this. It was first and foremost a symbol of progressive values. It meant there was togetherness in the married couple but also a level of autonomy. Secondly, as a working physician, Dr. Perelson needed a guaranteed good night's rest without the concern of Lillian's tossing and turning, disturbing his sleep. Around five o'clock the next morning, the doctor awoke. It's difficult to imagine what was going through the doctor's head as he was greeted by the stillness of early morning. Maybe he'd been planning what he was about to do for weeks prior, or perhaps it was an impulsive act and a climax to his supposed unraveling, a breaking point where he had nothing left to lose. We will probably never know. On that quiet morning, Dr. Perelson tiptoed downstairs to the kitchen, where he stowed a small toolbox. He opened it, and pulled out a ball-peen hammer before returning to the bedroom where his wife lay sound asleep. The doctor slowly approached Lillian's twin bed. He took a deep breath, and then he forcefully lowered the hammer down on his wife's head. He struck her repeatedly until her face was a mess of bloody carnage. The blows did not kill her, not immediately. Her suffering would be prolonged agonizing. When he was done, Dr. Perelson walked away from his wife's bed and crept toward the children's bedrooms. He headed first to 18-year-old Judy's bedroom. An ensuite bathroom connected Dr. Perelson and Lillian's room to Judy's. A light switch plate bearing the letters that spelled out her name denoted whose bedroom it was. Judy was not asleep. The sound of her mother being bludgeoned had awakened her. She pretended to be asleep as she heard footsteps approach her bed. Using the same hammer, Dr. Perelson attempted to bash in his oldest daughter's head, but she blocked the blow by raising a hand in defense. This may very well have saved her life, as it made the hammer land off kilter. As her father tried to continue striking her, Judy began screaming. According to Curbed L.A., Judy shrieked at the top of her lungs, Don't kill me. Dr. Perelson responded by ordering her to lie still and keep quiet. But the homicidal behavior she witnessed in her father set her into fight-or-flight mode, and she managed to escape his clutches. Peering quickly into her parents' bedroom, Judy saw her mother drenched in blood. Judy's two younger siblings were awakened by the commotion. Whether Dr. Perelson intended to kill them as well is unclear. According to Curbed LA, Debbie walked up to her father and asked what was going on. He responded, Go back to bed. This is a nightmare. Judy used the distraction to flee the house. She frantically banged on the door of the Lewis's, They didn't answer, so she knocked on another neighbor's door. It ended up being the home of attorney Marshall Ross. When Marshall saw Judy with blood streaming down her head, he immediately phoned for an ambulance. She let him know that her siblings were still inside the home and that her father was dangerous. Valiantly, Ross went into the Perilsons' house where he found Joel and Debbie waiting on the first floor. upstairs. Ross came face to face with Dr. Perelson. He was highly agitated, pacing around while saturated in blood. The doctor's breathing grew shallow, and Marshall instructed him to lie down. According to the police report, Dr. Perelson told Ross, Go on home, don't bother me. Before authorities arrived, Dr. Perelson had taken two doses of nembutal, a powerful barbiturate as well as 31 small white pills. These were believed to be either codeine or a strong tranquilizer. As he awaited death, the disconcerted doctor continued to grip the bloody hammer in his hand. That morning, when everything went sideways for the Perelson family, evoked a slew of urban legends that are still topics of conversation today. <music> 15 minutes after Marshall escorted the children away from the crime scene, Detectives W.T. Anderson and M.A. Pazo arrived around 5.15 in the morning. According to the LA Times, the detectives found Dr. Perelson lying on the floor next to his oldest daughter Judy's bed. He was dead, his body rested on a pillow covered in his daughter's blood. They found the body of 42-year-old Lillian Perelson lying among blood-soaked sheets, blood spatter on the wall behind her. Her face was so mangled, she was unrecognizable. The events of that morning seemed pretty straightforward. The doctor killed his wife and attempted to murder his oldest daughter before dying by suicide. But what was his motive? Dead men don't talk so the answer to that question will forever rest with Dr. Perelson in his grave. Detectives canvassed the neighborhood for anyone who may know something, but everyone talked about how perfect the Perelson family was. Aside from the murder weapon and medication, detectives spotted a book at the crime scene. Sitting on a nightstand beside the bed was a copy of Dante's The Divine Comedy. It was open to canto 1 which reads Midway upon the journey of our life I find myself within a forest dark for the straightforward pathway had been lost conspiracy theorists would dwell on the notion that Dr Perelson left the book open to this particular passage intentionally after all it summed up the wrong turns his life had taken and how, at 50 years old, he felt incredibly lost. The same conspiracist also noted the date of the murderous doctor's rampage, December 6th, the same calendar date the house's original owner died. Fortunately, Judy didn't sustain any life-threatening injuries from her father's attack. She was hospitalized briefly for a skull fracture and bruising, and then she went on with life. Neighbors who knew the Perilsons were shocked to hear of the gruesome crime. One neighbor, Sherry Lewis, lived across the street from the family. She was 14 at the time and often babysat for the two younger Perilson kids. In fact, she was scheduled to babysit Joel and Debbie the night after the murder-suicide had occurred. In an article from Medium, Sherry shared her family's reactions when the news broke. She said, We were all walking around in a state of panic. My mother was highly strung. She and Harold were good friends. There has been a decades-long debate regarding whether the relationship between Dr. Perelson and Sherry Lewis was strictly platonic. In an interview with The Hollywood Reporter— Medium journalist Jeff Meisch said Sherry described the doctor as mild-mannered. She said he and Lillian seemed to have a good relationship, but that Dr. Perelson enjoyed Sherry's cooking. If there had been an affair, there's no way to confirm or deny it. Sherry's father was an attorney and likely curious by nature. He decided to do some digging into the Perelson's past and found out from court documents that the doctor's previous heart attacks were actually suicide attempts. In the interview, Sherry continued by saying, It's not atypical for someone who has suicide attempts to then go after the people who have created the problem. It came out that his wife was, or the doctors, were going to have him committed. During the interview, Jeff Meisch speculated that Dr. Perelson intended to murder his entire family, but the younger children were spared. He believes this was because his plan went awry, when Judy fought back, or because he possessed some remnant of mercy. Judy Perelson had been well aware of the financial strife that nudged her father toward the edge. According to the Press Democrat, a letter written to her aunt shortly before the crime, was very telling. It was found by investigators in Judy's sports car. The letter read, For a while, things with the family were fine. Daddy seemed to be all right, and now we're back on the merry-go-round again. Same problems, same worries, only tenfold. My parents, so to speak, are in a bind financially. So this means more than just not burdening them with my problems, but to become self-supporting, which I planned to do, I realize it could be worse. Little did Judy know, she would gain her independence soon after writing that letter, but only because she had lost both of her parents. When I'm not telling true crime stories, my guilty pleasure is binging reality TV shows, In between commercials, my other not-so-guilty pleasure is playing Best Fiends, a fun match-three puzzle game. I play it on my phone, and ever since I started, I found it really hard to stop. But honestly, I don't even feel guilty about it because Best Fiends engages my brain. I have to actually think and strategize to advance to the next level. And there is always a next level because Best Fiends is always adding new levels, challenges, and events. I get such a rush when I conquer a new level, but mostly because I can rub it in my husband's face because he never seems to keep up with me. He says he plays Best Fiends to clear his head after a stressful day at work, and I keep playing because, well, I just can't stop. Best Fiends is such a challenge, and I think that's what really draws me in. Plus, the characters in the game are really cute. The more levels I beat, the better the game gets. Download Best Fiends today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. When it comes to making dinner, I want it to be quick, easy, and healthy, which is why I use HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, I get affordable, easy-to-make, fresh meals delivered right to my doorstep. All ingredients come pre-measured, and these meals are ready in about 30 minutes or less. HelloFresh has options like vegetarian, carb-smart, low-calorie, and pescatarian, and all produce is fresh and sourced directly from farmers. I also save money with HelloFresh because it comes with just the right amount of ingredients. No food gets wasted. At the grocery store, I almost always end up buying too much and then food and money go to waste. My daughter and I love making dinner together, so we get excited when a new HelloFresh delivery arrives. I also love that my family and I eat less fast food now because when we're in a time crunch, we whip up a quick HelloFresh meal instead of going to the drive through Go to hellofresh.com murderish10 and use code murderish10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping, That's HelloFresh.com slash murderish10 and use code murderish10 for 10 free meals plus free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Judy had witnessed her father slip into madness, culminating in the brutal murder of her mother, which awoke her that awful morning. The teenage girl's blood-curdling screams were heard by several neighbors who were traumatized to hear Judy begging for her life. Anyone who saw Judy's mother's battered body would assume she died as a result of severe head trauma. Coroners who examined Lillian's body, however, discovered that the whites of her eyes were blood red, confirming that Lillian's cause of death was actually asphyxiation. Her death was slow and painful. She had drowned in her own blood After being struck so violently, the hammer left an inch-wide hole in the back of her head. After the Perilson children were left without parents, the same aunt to whom Judy had written a letter took custody of the children. The aunt, Gertrude Salen, was Lillian's sister, and she didn't want Dr. Perelson's side of the family to play a role in the children's upbringing. She also petitioned the court to take over as trustee for the compensation payments they were receiving from the car accident. The Perelson children moved to the East Coast, where it is speculated they changed their last names to disassociate completely from their father's crimes. Though reporters made countless attempts to reach out to the Perelson kids, none of them were interested in speaking publicly about what happened that awful morning. A year later, in 1960, the home that was once the scene of a real-life nightmare was purchased by Julian and Emily Enriquez. According to Atlas Obscura, neighbors watched the couple as they brought boxes into the house. By morning, however, their cars were gone. Bizarrely, The Enriquezes never fully moved in, instead opting to use the house as a storage space. A home once filled with the delight of birthdays, anniversaries, and Christmas holidays, the milestone of lost teeth, and games of hide-and-seek, sat unused and unoccupied for 34 years. Fast forward to 1994, Julian and Emily Enriquez's son, Rudy, inherited the mansion after both parents passed away. Much like his parents, Rudy never really stayed there, although he did return frequently to feed his two cats who lived alone in the home. Eventually, the unoccupied estate fell into a state of slow decay. Neighbors pitched in occasionally to prevent the yard from becoming an eyesore. After all, Having a derelict property nearby decreased the value of their homes. The crumbling Los Feliz mansion became a refuge for squatters, and the backyard became a homeless camp. Although Rudy had installed a security system in and around the property, people knew the home was abandoned, and they took advantage of that. The house sat there like a time capsule for over 50 years and it didn't take long for rumors to spread about paranormal activity on the property. What started as a local urban legend spread far and wide with the advent of the internet. The mansion became a favorite site for urban explorers and believers in the supernatural. The no trespassing sign and metal chain across the driveway did little to dissuade adventurers from breaking in. Some of them were locals, including modern-day neighbor Cherie Watson. According to the website The Lineup, Watson claimed her friend had visited the rundown home on one particular night. During her visit, Watson said that her friend was bitten by a black widow spider. She was so panicked that she accidentally tripped the burglar alarm. Watson said two nights later, the alarm kept going off at my house on my back door. But there was no one there. It was like the ghost was following us. Brian Clune's book mentions that ghost hunters have identified patterns in recorded sightings at the home. Clune wrote A common occurrence seems to be the sounds of screams and moans being heard by intrepid ghost hunters in the wee morning hours. The hunters have reported hearing the sound of a woman calling out, No, in a terrified voice followed by her frantic screaming and then silence. If that isn't eerie enough, floating orbs have been spotted drifting around the house. Some of the orbs have even materialized in the form of a ghostly woman. Clune adds, Perhaps the most reported events coming from these ghost hunters are the sightings of faces that stare out the windows of the old mansion. The hunters tell of seeing the face of a woman staring at them through one of the upstairs windows. She will gaze at them for a few minutes and then simply vanish from sight. Could it be that Lillian Perelson was haunting the home where she took her last breath? Curiosity about this still exists today. Perhaps even more unsettling than otherworldly spirits, is what greets the brave souls who have peered into the windows of the home. According to Curbed LA, there were countless internet rumors about there still being a Christmas tree in the living room of the house, complete with presents still wrapped. Trespassers and onlookers also spotted a 1950s-era television set, a 1963 issue of Life magazine, and a can of SpaghettiOs. Because of the date printed on the magazine and the fact that SpaghettiOs were not around when the Perilsons lived there, it's likely the subsequent owners left behind those relics of the past. But why didn't the new owners change the furnishings or remove the Perilsons' personal effects? That alone didn't make sense. Blogger Jennifer Clay told Curbed LA she has been inside the house before. She can confirm up until the early 2000s, there were still Christmas presents tied with ribbons. There were also clothes left out to dry, private letters and old books. Clay has studied the Perelson case extensively over the years and even retraced Judy's escape route through the house on that fateful morning. She told Medium, I imagined her running away from her crazy dad And just how awful that must have been. I almost got the same feeling. Hi, and thanks for checking out Drinking the Kool-Aid. I'm Cassidy. And I'm Amanda. And this is a podcast dedicated to the mysterious. Are you into conspiracy theories? True crime? Aliens? The paranormal? If so, you might be interested in our podcast, Drinking the Kool-Aid. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Just remember to keep your front door locked, your mind open, and and keep keep drinking drinking the The Kool-Aid. In an April 2016 interview, Jeff Meisch told The Hollywood Reporter, The neighbors hate all the attention the house gets. The murder mystery tour buses go up there. It's a regular thing to have bloggers, Web sleuths, as they call themselves, snoop around the area because this case gathered so much attention on the internet. There are groups of people that dedicate their time to try to get to the bottom of it, and they live online. So, what is it about the house that made it so appealing for thrill seekers? Was it the dark legacy of the Perilsons, with two of the family members perishing there? The possibility of encountering a ghost? Or curiosity for what unknown discoveries could lurk beyond the shattered gargoyle guarding the path to the door? The estate went up for auction in 2016 after Rudy Enriquez passed away. As per California state law, a death at a home must be disclosed for only three years after it happens. So while it's likely no real estate agents were telling potential buyers about Dr. Perelson's crime, A quick internet search of 2475 Glendower Place would turn up plenty of results about the murder-suicide. A couple who, according to Curbed Los Angeles, were the only bidders, purchased the house for $2.3 million in July of 2016. Civil rights attorney and true TV personality Lisa Bloom and her husband were the new owners. They intended to renovate the crumbling historic mansion and actually live there. And yet, only three years later, the home was put up for sale again. It stayed on the market for 16 months. According to a May 2019 Curbed Los Angeles article, the asking price was $3.5 million, and only cash would be accepted. Though the interior was gutted down to the studs, and the flooring was stripped, the outside of the notorious mansion remained the same. People wondered whether the new owners had learned of the home's bloody past and decided against making it their permanent residence. According to Lisa Bloom, however, their reasons for selling the home were far more practical. It would simply cost far too much money to gut the house and make it align with modern safety standards. Whoever purchased it next needed to be willing to tear it down and start from scratch. Bloom and her husband eventually reduced the asking price to $2.5 million. As of October 2020, the home with a decades-old reputation was in escrow. Speculation about Dr. Harold Perelson's motive still exists today. People wonder whether a centuries-old curse had been the root cause for the bloody scene on December 6th, 1959, or had the murder-suicide been a culmination of Dr. Perelson's spiraling into madness or depression over stress from lawsuits and financial woes, or perhaps the crime was brought on by restless spirits. Whether you are a believer in the supernatural or not, it's hard to deny the string of dark circumstances attached to the Los Feliz property are at the very least incredibly bizarre. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. If you'd like to hear sources for this episode, stick around after the closing music. Check out Murderish.com if you want to buy Murderish merch like t-shirts, face masks, and more. If you can't get enough Murderish, subscribe to our Patreon service to get immediate access to bonus content only available to Patreon subscribers, like the recent episode where I talk about the time I came home to find two strangers in my house. You can sign up for Patreon at Murderish.com, where there's a link to go behind the scenes and become a Patreon subscriber. Thank you to Karen B. for becoming a Patreon subscriber. I really appreciate your support. You guys, I want to connect with you. Follow me on Instagram at Murderish Podcast and on Twitter at Murderish Pod. Or you can join the Murderish Facebook discussion group. We have so much fun in there. Don't forget to tell a friend about the podcast and leave a review for Murderish in your favorite listening app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Allison Schwartz. As always, ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast does not make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Sources for this episode include a Hollywood Reporter article dated April 1, 2016 by Seth Abramovich, an Associated Press article in The Courier News dated December 7, 1959, an Associated Press article in the Salt Lake Tribune dated December 7, 1959, a Variety article dated October 6, 2020 by Lindsay Blake, a Curbed Los Angeles article dated July 22, 2016 by Jenna Chandler. A Curbed Los Angeles article dated May 17, 2019 by Elijah Chaland. An LA Weekly article dated August 1, 2017 by Brian Clune. A Los Angeles Times article dated March 18, 2016 by Scott Garner. A Los Angeles Times print article dated April 16, 2016 by Neil J. Lieteregg. A September 19, 2019 article in the lineup by Chris Mahone. A Medium article dated September 15, 2015 by Jeff Meisch. A Curbed Los Angeles article dated October 31, 2017 by Hadley Mears. A Los Angeles Times article dated February 6, 2009 by Bob Poole. A December 7, 1959 print article in the Press Democrat. A 2020 article at DidYouKnowFacts.com by Kim Wong-Shing. An LA Conservatory 2020 article at LAConservancy.org. A Los Angeles Times print article dated December 7th, 1959. With the Lucky Lands Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.